Well, I've decided to preach a sermon that in most churches would be um, probably distasteful. Uh, It's called Lessons on Church Discipline from Corinth. You came this morning to hear about lessons from church discipline from Corinth. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, kind of just making some observations. Now, what is church discipline? Some of you went, what is church discipline? You might be sitting here going, what in the world is church discipline? You take your church members over your knee and you give them a spank? Sometimes that's necessary, but here's my attempt at a definition. Church discipline is an act of a local church wherein an unrepentant member is confronted for the purpose of restoration. If the party addressed refuses to repent, the local church is to excommunicate the unrepentant member for a twofold goal. One is to maintain purity among its members. So I am arguing that scripture teaches local churches have the right and the duty in order to maintain purity among its members to discipline their members. But a second goal is the restoration of the unrepentant party. Some in this room have been a part of this kind of a process. Our church, GRBC, hasn't, thank God, hasn't had to go through this process. Anytime a waywardness has occurred among our members, there's been either immediate or, or, or not so immediate repentance and restoration. Nothing ever needed to become public. Some of you, though, have been involved with public formal discipline of of a member or members of the church you were a member of. The best way to handle that would be a members-only meeting and take the church through the steps of Scripture. It can be very painful. It can be very delightful not going through it, but if the repentant party ends up repenting, uh, it's time for a celebration. And some of you have seen that. Church discipline, however, is not a popular activity, especially in our day. As you might, you don't have to think very hard about this, but some view it as harsh treatment. You think you're holy and somebody else isn't, something like that. Some don't like it because of its public disclosures. Some professing Christians even shun church membership because they fear church discipline. Now think about that. I think both are taught in Scripture. You don't want this one, so you don't do this one. Why wouldn't you want church discipline if its goal is the restoration of your soul? Why wouldn't you want fellow brothers and sisters who, are lo- who love you to approach you when necessary, when and if necessary, to lure you back to Christ and the church? I think that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. People that don't like that are disrespectful of Christ and the means he established for our good. Now, there's a lot of potential dangers in church discipline as well that cause many to reject it. If you practice church discipline, people may fear becoming a member of your church. You might be sitting here right now and not a member of our church going, I ain't joining that church. They're too serious. Well, like I said before, we've existed for 11 years. We haven't had one case of church discipline. Therefore, nobody in our church membership ever sins. That wasn't a joke. It was a joke, obviously. 
If you practice church discipline, some people say, you are sure to have some leave your church disagreeing with a discipline case conducted by the church. Don't do church discipline. Why? People will fight about it, and then people will leave. Well, our confession in chapter 26, 13 says, when the proceedings of the church are being conducted and there's difficulties in the church, church members are to wait upon Christ and not absent themselves from the meetings of the church, which entails or leave the church simply because something didn't go your way. If you practice church discipline, others say, you run the risk of being sued. That is true. I was involved with a case at another church many years ago where we were threatened more than once with lawsuits from two different parties. We went to the church and church uh, and encouraged the church to conduct discipline, and we did, and neither party filed suit. The biggest potential peril, however, connected to church discipline is what may happen to us if we don't practice it. We can dishonor the Lord Jesus. By the way, let me tell you, next week's church meeting is not about church discipline, so be relieved. We can dishonor the Lord Jesus, pollute our church with what Paul calls old leaven, disruptive members because of their carnality. We can do severe damage to souls who desperately need God's rod in the form of church discipline. See, I'm trying to convince you today in part that if and when any any of our member needs to be disciplined, it's actually good for them because its goal is restoration. I had a situation in my pastoral uh, experience where we had to bring a member before the, con- before the membership in the Matthew 18 process. And this person says, Pastor, can I attend the meeting? And since we had enacted no church discipline on this person, he's a member of the church, and so he could attend the meeting. And he did. Some of you were actually there. And spontaneously, after the public uh, disclosure of his unrepentant lifestyle was made, I exhorted the church. I said, some of you know the party better than others and would be more comfortable in addressing where the church is corporately now addressing the person, calling the person to repentance. But I encourage you to do that. Spontaneously, a line formed, and it took about an hour longer for the meeting to finally end. It was, it was really a sight to see. If you want to know, the person was excommunicated and then restored about a year and a half later and is doing well walking with Christ. Now, Paul's letters to the Corinthians contains two sections, 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, that deal with a church discipline case from which many lessons may be learned. So all I'm going to do is kind of walk through 1 Corinthians 5 and a portion of 2 Corinthians 3 and make observations. I think I have 10 Ten is the whole or perfect number, so therefore these are perfect observations. Lessons on church discipline from Corinth, ten observations. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That is where we'll launch from. The first observation 
comes from verse 1. And here's verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, lost people, that a man has his father's wife. So some sort of incest. So the first observation is this, that sin, even grievous sin, may be present in a local church, 1 Corinthians 5.1. This is a local church. He addresses them as the church in Corinth in the first chapter. If we went over to Acts, we're not going to go there, but in Acts 18, Luke has Paul in Corinth, and about two years later, Paul wrote what we call 1 Corinthians, probably from Ephesus. So within this two-year period, the church was born. Then it gets this first letter. Paul gets a report about the church in Corinth, and this report is what he is addressing. One of the issues of the report was, was this issue. Second observation, the first being sin, maybe present in a local church, even grievous sin, is this, that a true church may fall into sin by overlooking grievous public, public sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 2a. And you are puffed up, whatever that is, it doesn't sound good, right? And have not rather mourned, you should have mourned, you didn't mourn, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So the second observation is that a true church, Corinth is addressed as a true church, may fall into sin by overlooking grievous public sin. The third observation is that such churches deserve to be rebuked for allowing such sin. You can see the rebuke Paul gives them in, um, oh, in the rest of the verse, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. It's kind of a rebuke. You didn't do what you ought to have done. Shame on you. You can also see this in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven levels, leavens the whole lump? So there's a rebuke given to them. Fourth observation is this. The fourth observation is that such churches must become proactive in dealing with that sin. So he tells them in verse 2 that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Instead of being puffed up, you should have mourned for, for this purpose or this end to the point of taking him away from you. That's the language of, of uh, no longer give public affirmation to this professing Christian's profession of faith. Remove that blessing, that corporate affirmation of their uh, confession of Christ. Remove that from them and, and remove him from your membership. But you can see it in verse nine, uh, 7 as well where it says, therefore, purge out the old leaven. In other words, become proactive in dealing with this sin. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. In verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So there's... They are to become proactive. Now, this is a sexually immoral person within the membership of the, the church doing such things as the lost people in their culture would have frowned upon as well. Okay, so this isn't just like, you know, a guy got mad at his wife and whatever. Whatever you guys do when you get mad at your wife, I have never gotten mad at mine. 
Such churches must become proactive in dealing with that sin. My wife said, you just sinned. Mourn, verse 2. Mourn. You know, if somebody gets caught in a sin like this and is unrepentant, we have a church meeting and we excommunicate the person. Should our attitude be one of continual mourning? I think so. Mourning throughout the whole process. Or should we go, got what he deserved? I don't think we should have the got what he deserved attitude. Take him away from you. Become proactive. Verse 3. Notice 1 Corinthians 5.3. This is an interesting one. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. I have already judged him, and you need to judge him. Look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Judge, do not judge, lest you be judged. Remember Jesus said that? You keep reading the Bible, it says, judge with righteous judgment. So there's a type of judgment we're not supposed to conduct ourselves in, but there's another type of judgment we are. Assess a situation, draw conclusions, and then act upon the conclusions. Paul says, I've already done this. And he's, as we'll see, he's going to tell them later, as we'll see in the next subpoint, he's going to tell them to do the same. Look at verses 4 and 5. In this name of our Lord Jesus, he just said, I've already judged the person. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, a formal corporate meeting of the church, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Whatever that means, it means at least this much. Kick him out of the membership of the church. No longer recognize him publicly as a Christian. He might and hopefully is really a Christian. And we'll see if he is. We'll deliver him over to Satan. Attacks and onslaughts of the devil accentuated when uh, upon excommunicated persons. I've seen excommunicated persons who were saying all along, I want to repent, I want to repent, I want to repent, but they weren't repenting. And then after they're excommunicated, just go bonkers into sin. And then a year or two later, the onslaughts of the devil were slowly but surely weakened and stopped. And then the person came to their spiritual senses. So he tells them to gather together to, uh, to deliver such a one to Satan. And then in verse 7, purge out the old leaven at the beginning. Purge out the old leaven. That is the bad influence upon others that that one is causing and the bad testimony for the church in the world and among the churches that you are causing because you haven't done what you should. Don't keep company with sexually immoral people, verse 9. And notice verse 11. That is, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So this person is named a brother, is in the church, identified by the church, as a good candidate for membership, 
received by the church into membership. Now he's unrepentant, and he says, don't keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So they were to be proactive in light of their passivity and unwillingness to be so prior to that. Now, thus far, we're going to go over to 2 Corinthians 2 now. Thus far, the situation we've examined has offered us many lessons. The church at Corinth was corrupted by the presence of sexual immorality. They were not dealing with it properly. In fact, it seems like they were doing the very opposite of what they should have been doing. In not dealing with it, they were actually sinning. They get the rebuke from the apostle, from the Lord, through the apostle. He rebukes them and tells them what to do. Come together, basically, for the purpose of rendering a judgment on the guilty party. And once the judgment has been rendered, excommunicate the guilty party from among you. That's what he tells them to do. Now, in our day and age, it sounds kind of harsh for some ears. And maybe some ears, it's not so harsh. But what did they do? What did they do? They received this letter. What did they do? The answer comes in 2 Corinthians 2, which we'll turn to now, written about two years after this letter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is my fifth observation. It comes from this passage. The fifth observation is that the Corinthians inflicted the punishment of excommunication on the sexually immoral man depicted for us in 1 Corinthians 5. We learn that from this passage. They did what the apostle said. You can see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, where we read these words. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a one. Okay, so a judgment was rendered, and now a form of punishment on the unrepentant church member was inflicted by, notice, the majority, and he says, that's sufficient for such a man. So they obeyed the Lord's word through the apostle. And we should note that Paul mentions it was by the majority. You see that? This punishment inflicted by the majority. What do we draw from that? At least in church discipline, all that's needed to pass a motion brought before the congregation is a majority vote. So this indicates that some, we don't know how many, did not agree with the discipline. It was inflicted upon them by the entire church. Nope, by the majority, which means a minority didn't agree with the majority. That would be a challenge, wouldn't it be? Here you are, a member of the church, and you, you hear the thing. It's gone through Matthew 18. The vote comes to excommunicate, and you say no, uh, and 30% say no, and 70% says yes. Therefore, you leave the church. Have you ever been a member of a church and voted no and stayed? I have. Matter of fact, in our Constitution, we say in votes where the majority 
says yes, and you might be in the minority, you submit yourself to the mind of the brethren. It's not worth leaving churches over. I doubt people left the church. But it is interesting. Anyway, they did what they were told. Okay, so they they repented and they got obedient. Sixth observation is that at least some of the Corinthians fell into the trap of exacting a pound of flesh when forgiveness, comfort, and restoration was in store. Notice verses 5 through 7. But if anyone has caused grief... He has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. Don't be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. This entails the guy repented, lest perhaps perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. The sixth observation, again, is that at least some of the Corinthians fell into, I'll call this, the devil's trap of exacting a pound of flesh when forgiveness, comfort, and restoration was in store. So if we're back there and we're the Corinthian church, uh, first Corinthian church of Athens or, or of Corinth, Greece, not second Corinthians church, first Corinthians, there's only one church there, okay? We're members of that church some of us would have been guilty of not forgiving the repentant party. That's what he's saying. He, you should rather comfort him instead of exacting a pound of flesh. Forgiveness is in store. Restoration ought to be done. Celebration, in one sense, ought to be done. It is a, a trap easily to fall into. Suppose somebody does this public, scandalous, unrepentant lifestyle of sin, and we come and we address him privately or her privately, and we go through all the stages. It needs to come to the church. We tell it to the church. We say, church, I almost said go after him or her. Um, Address the person and the issues, and they say they repented, and then Three months later, same thing, same pattern. You know, your, our attitude should not be fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm voting no. Okay. Instead, if the fruits of repentance are there, comfort, forgiveness, restoration. Seventh observation is that church discipline can be allowed to last too long. That's what verse 7 is telling us, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. It's done its work. He's filled with sorrow for his sin and the shame he brought upon his own name and his family name and the church's name. Don't allow it to last too long. The eighth observation is that the removal of church discipline constitutes a reaffirmation of love for the one disciplined. The removal of church discipline constitutes a public reaffirmation of love for the one disciplined. Verse 8, therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. See that? Discipline was inflicted. It's done its work. Don't let, let it last too long. Now a public affirmation of love. Again, if you haven't been through this, uh, it's one thing. If you've been through it and it's worked, it's, it's quite yummy for the soul. The eighth observation, oh, the ninth observation, excuse me, is that the removal of church discipline is a test of obedience 
and must involve full forgiveness. This is verses 9 and 10. Let me say it again. The removal of church discipline is a test of obedience for the church and must involve full forgiveness. For this end, I also wrote, verse 9, that I might put you to the test, there it is, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. In other words, you remove the discipline, I forgive them as well. For if indeed I had I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Which leads me to the tenth observation is that when the removal of church discipline does not involve full, full forgiveness, it creates a crack in the door for Satan to take advantage of a local church. When full forgiveness is not given, when someone of our mem- within our membership repents, when we don't extend full forgiveness, when we, we forgive with strings attached, it leaves a crack in the door for Satan to take advantage of us. Have you ever seen that? Uh, I have from a distance. I don't think I've been either a pastor or a member of a church that was going through a discipline uh, situation that Satan got into. But I've seen it from the outside. I've watched other churches go through the stages of church discipline and there not be full forgiveness by either a small party or, or whatever, or just one individual or a couple. And it, is a, it became a crack for Satan to take advantage of that church. And, it, and, and when Satan gets in there, they get dismantled. Bombs go off, and the side of the ship, holes explode. Then water comes in and drowns souls. It's a figure of speech, okay? It's a metaphor. That, that's what happened. It, churches implode by not doing discipline properly. So with that, contemplations, lessons. What are some lessons we can learn from this uh, bloody, these two bloody texts of 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2? You could go back to 1 Corinthians 5, because I'll make some observations or draw some lessons out of verses we've already read. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Here's a lesson. We should not be shocked if and when we find grievous sin in our church. Even when we find less than grievous sin in our church, if somebody is harsh with you and they shouldn't have been harsh with you, you shouldn't go, oh, I'm leaving. We should instead, we should mourn. Is every single uh, perceived infraction of the law of God worth pursuing every single time you sense somebody sinned? You better say no, because you won't be able to have a job. Love covers a multitude of sins. Cover it with the blanket of love, right? That's what some people used to say. 
Kind of cheesy, sorry. But it's true. It's just a figure of speech. In other words, you don't pursue every single peccadillo. Uh, that was Luther. Remember, Luther's in the confessional. And he's confessing his sins for like hours upon hours. And Staupitz or whoever it was says, some of these are peccadillos. They're just little, little infractions. Give me the big ones, you know. But we shouldn't be shocked if grievous, open, public, scandalous sin occurs in either our church or other churches. The sin in Corinth was not only repulsive to God, but also to the culture in which they lived. Think about getting that kind of rebuke from the Lord through an apostle. You guys are allowing this to happen, and the world, the outside onlookers, they wouldn't allow this to happen, not even named among the Gentiles. Now, fornication and adultery were somewhat common activities back then, but not incest. So you might be asking the question, how could this kind of sin, sin even repulsive to the world, exist in the church? I thought I went to church to get away from sin, and now you're saying I could go get in a church and one of my members can commit grievous, open, public, scandalous sin. Well, how could this happen? Here's how it could happen. Because of the fact of what we call remaining corruption in all of us. 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter 2.11. Abstain from fleshly lusts which are waging war against the soul. Within the Christian is this thing called fleshly lusts that wages war against the soul's more gracious, positive, godly inclinations. Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about that. We call it remaining sin because it involves a proneness towards sins which were fed, fertilized, and fondled when we were lost. What remains? Inclinations that we used to feed. What was the other word? Fertilize and fondle when we were lost. So then you get saved, and you ask the question, what am I going to struggle with? Whatever you fed, fertilized, and fondled. That's what you got to fight against, especially. So the question is, how could this kind of sin, even repulsive to the world, exist in the church? Christians sin, and they have remaining corruption, and every once in a while it happens that a good, godly, faithful church member starts compromising, and it doesn't happen overnight, by the way. You just don't fall off the curb into, into sin, right? There are steps and stages and all that. But how could this, this kind of sin be present in a church? Because some churches allow it. You say, well, which ones? Corinth. They allowed it, right? And they got rebuked. Some churches in our day allow it as well. The fact that sin exists should be a given. But the fact that the church allows grievous, public, scandalous sin should not be a given. It's a real shock to Paul, and it should be a real shock to us as well. A second lesson, first is we shouldn't be shocked. Second lesson is 1 Corinthians 5-7, we must realize that public scandalous sin in the church does not remain private and isolated. 5-7, therefore, 
Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly our unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So we have to realize that public scandalous sin in the church does not remain private and isolated. Leaven here is put for influence. So if we said, therefore, purge out the influence that is caused by that person's continually unrepentant lifestyle, you know what it does, and then you don't discipline them. People watch it, and weak saints are going, oh, oh, I can lie with my father's wife, and everything's okay. Wow, cool. I can continue in sin that grace might abound. That's what leaven does. Leaven influences in the wrong direction. The nature of such sin in the church, sexual sin in this case, is to ferment, is to corrupt, and is to spread. You remember Paul in 2 Timothy, if you don't, I'll recall uh, these words for you. In 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, it's not just sexual sin, by the way. Shun, this is 2 Timothy 2, 16. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Here's the influence of leaven. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. So what did these two guys do that deserve their names being scripted here? Who have strayed concerning the truth. Ah, even doctrinal error, not just moral failure, but doctrinal error can be cancerous, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. So Paul's pretty adamant there. It's cancerous. It gets in. It corrupts. It ferments. It, it spread, ferments, then it corrupts, and then it spreads to others. In the second Corinthians, in the first Corinthians situation, it was moral uh, failure, sin. In the second Timothy situation, it was doctrine connected to the resurrection, which, by the way, is one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, without which we don't have Christianity, First Corinthians. Chapter 15. Some of you have seen that happen. Poisonous stuff gets in the church, corrupts others, and then people belittle the corrupting element, the doctrine, because the person's a nice guy or a nice gal or whatever. And then slowly but surely, people put up with it, and then people actually agree with it, or it's not a big deal and all that stuff. Some of you know that uh, I was involved with a situation once where somebody was teaching, basically, that the resurrection had already taken place, okay? So the heir of Hymenaeus and, and Philetus, or whatever their names were. And so I called out for counsel. What do I do? And some well, first guy says, be really patient. We have a guy. We've worked with him for over a year. We think we're, recl- we're getting him back on the track. So and then another guy says, um, give him two weeks to repent, and if he doesn't, bring him before the church. And another guy says, give him a week, meet with him tomorrow, tell him you have till the Lord's Day, and if you don't repent, we're going to excommunicate you. I said, why a week? He said, because it's cancer. It'll get in there. It'll creep into souls. It'll infect others. It'll corrupt their thinking, and they won't be able to judge righteously. 
Well, the third lesson comes from 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. We must beware of creating a Christian subculture wherein we feel comfortable and protected and isolated from the evil that's in the world. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. So here it is again. We must beware of creating a Christian subculture wherein we feel comfortable and protected and isolated from the evil that's in the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I, write to you, or I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. See that? Or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Oh, my neighbor's an idolater. I can't ever talk to him. The sexually immoral person that he's talking about here and the type of relation he's talking about here, keep company, is don't allow church members to be unre- in that unrepentant lifestyle of sin. Those are the ones you're not to keep company with. Oh, my neighbor has a live-in girlfriend. I can't talk to him. He's saying, no, you'd have to go out of the world, right? Matter of fact, I think he's going to say that. He does say that. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. The Shell station has a Muslim who owns it. I can't buy gas from him because I'd be keeping company with an idolater. Here's how I basically judge which gas station to use, the cheapest and the closest. Otherwise, I'd have to go out of the world, right? Verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, you see that, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. Now that's interesting. Not even to eat with such a person. A so-called brother who's living in these unrepentant, uh, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. These are the categories of sin. Not even to eat with such a one. There's differences of opinion what he meant there. I think at least it means this. He's not taking the Lord's Supper anymore. The most intimate communion we have corporately with our Savior is when we take the supper. Ban him from the supper. I think at least it means that. Now think about this. Let's suppose you're married to, you're actually married to the guy that was with his father's wife, and you're both members of the Corinthian church, and your husband gets excommunicated. You can't have breakfast with him. See, that's why I'm going, I don't think it means universally no food with people that have been excommunicated. I think it means they don't get the food of the supper, at least that much. Jesus, by the way, didn't live this way. Jesus didn't isolate himself from the wicked people in his day, right? Matter of fact, it was just the opposite. He, He eats and drinks with sinners. And you know what the Christian should say? Yep, that's my, that's my savior. He, he, he came down and he is seeking the lost, not the righteous, but sinners, people who have messed their lives up. Those are the one Jesus goes toward. And that's, by the way, he's going toward you right now through my preaching and saying, Come to me, I'll cleanse you, I'll forgive you, I'll give you a righteous standing, I'll put you in a community that loves you and nurtures you and you can grow and develop and all that stuff. Jesus didn't live this way. Paul didn't live that way either. And we are not to live this way until we go out of this world. 
Then we can live that way because it'll be the only way to live in the, the world to come. There will be no idolaters there, no sexually immoral people there. There will be uh, a lot of those in that world that such were some of them, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 when he lists those ugly, gross sins, and then he says, and such were some of you. Okay? That, by the way, that's what our church membership is made up of. Such were some of you. You know, if we ever had a, we're not going to do this, a tell-all session, it would be pretty gory, wouldn't it? wouldn't it? Oh, man, I remember I did this. Oh, I remember I did this. And then your wife would lean over and say, and, and this, and this, and this, and this. And then if we remembered publicly all the sins of our youth and teenage years, and we'd have abortions and all kinds of grief of soul that we brought upon ourselves because of sin. And such were some of you. In that day, everyone's going to be a such were some of you person. But in our day and age, we must involve interaction. We must have interaction with unbelievers and sometimes even of the most heinous sort. Listen to what he says again. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. See what he's saying? He's making a distinction between a so-called brother who's sexually immoral and an unbeliever who's sexually immoral. Don't keep company with the one. But it's okay to keep company with the other on a, you know, be on a careful basis. Or with covetous or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So we must beware of creating a Christian subculture wherein we feel comfortable and protected and isolated from the evil that's in the world. Another lesson is we must make sure that when it is time to forgive and comfort those who have been disciplined by the church, we actually forgive and comfort them. I take this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So we must make sure that if and when it is time to forgive and comfort those who have been disciplined by the church, we actually forgive and comfort them. See, our church needs to have a culture of forgiveness. It should be safe for sinners to come here, pour out their sins, and, you know, you put your arm around them. Believe me, I, I know what you're talking about. That's why I came to Jesus. We should have a culture where people with horrible backgrounds could be members of our church, provided they have repented of their sins, believe in the gospel, and are baptized. In light of this, a warning is in store. Beware of not being like God when those disciplined have been restored by the church. Now, the reason why I said that is because of Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Just listen. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on 
tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. In the Greek, that word means to suffer a long time, to put up with the faults of others. Bearing with one another. <laughs> See what he's, that's just realism right there. Bearing with one another. Doesn't that have a connotation in your mind when you hear this word, this phrase? Bear with this person. Put up with them and their peccadilloes, and their, their faults. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even, here it is, as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. When the Lord Jesus revealed himself to your soul and you sensed, whenever that was, however, even if you can't identify the point, it happened, that sense of cleansing and forgiveness, did you hear a voice from heaven, but there's strings attached? I forgive you of 98% of your sins, but the other two, you got to do penance for them. You didn't hear that, right? Full, free pardon. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. Okay, That's the way we need to be toward the brothers and sisters. And as hopefully new ones come in, that's the way we need to be with them as well. You mean you did that in your past? I don't know. Honey, I don't know if we can have that person in our membership. They'll be there every week, and we got to sit in the same building with them. Look what she did. Look what he did. I, I don't think we have any members like that. If we do, shame on you. And I mean that seriously. Don't think that way. Don't do that. You don't want people to do that to you, right? Not only be a fault finder, but be a, an archaeologist digging up yuck from the past and put it in, in, in your face. That's not a, that's not a church. Um, we're to forgive like we've been forgiven. And then also, uh, and this is the last one, marvel, that means be amazed, be thankful, Marvel at the provision of our Lord for the safety of his people and the reclamation of wayward believers. Marvel at the provision of our Lord for the safety of his people and the reclamation of wayward believers. Listen to Matthew 18. I forgot to read it. I was going to read this earlier. This is Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, so that's private. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Isn't that great? Thank you for telling me that. You know what? You're right. I was sinfully angry, and I lashed out at you. You're, you're right. Please forgive me. You've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more brothers or sisters from the church, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So this would be a second phase. The first stage doesn't work. This is stage two. And if he refuses to hear them, here's stage three, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen 
and a tax collector. Remove the corporate stamp of approval on their profession of faith uh, and don't acknowledge that. No Lord's Supper, no membership, no members' meetings, nothing. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound very, you know, why should we marvel at that, kicking people out of the church? Because the Second Corinthians passage, sometimes they come back. And then we can show our Christian grace to them and forgive them. We must make sure, excuse me, we should marvel at the provision of our Lord for the safety of his people and the reclamation of wayward believers. Never forget the fact that our Lord came to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1. Not only did he live, die, and rise on our behalf, but he also instituted disciplinary measures with which he calls his own back to himself when they stray far away from him. Is that harsh? The Lord Jesus, during his earthly ministry, gave church discipline as a means to both preserve the purity of his local congregations, but also as to lure back wayward Christians. If you were a wayward one, and you did some dastardly deed, openly, publicly scandalous, and refused to repent of it. Instead, he just ran away and you went off into the far country and you realized, oh my, I got to go back home. And you wanted to come back home. What would you want the home dwellers to do upon your repentance? You would want them to feed the entire Congregation, tacos, in celebration of your repentance, right? Or whatever, you know. That's what you'd want. And if that happened, you'd have to thank Jesus because he gave church discipline for a twofold reason preserve the purity of the congregation and its testimony among Christians and the world, and allure to make unrepentant, wayward believers. Um, jealous to come back into the fold. So is that harsh? I would say not only is it not harsh, it's not mean, but it's actually the course of love. Our Lord Jesus has ways and means of preserving his own, the church's means of grace. Do we want to call church discipline the church's means, one of the church's means of grace? Yes. Our Lord has ways and means of preserving his own and luring his own wayward children, reeling them back in. I think that's wonderful. I think that should cause us to say, hallelujah, let's have a church discipline meeting. Or maybe not. But if we ever have to have one, On the one hand, purity and protecting and preserving the testimony with other Christians and the world. On the other hand, oh Lord, bring them back. We sing about waywardness. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. What kind of heart? Wandering heart. What does it need? It needs to be fettered. Is that a word? It is now. It needs to be bound by grace, prone to wander, 
I don't know of a true believer that doesn't like this line. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Okay, so even us who are here and persevering, this is, is true of us as well. But how much more so a wanderer, somebody who wanders away from the flock under church discipline, and they get their wandering heart gets bound up by grace and brought back into the fold. That's the day of uh, grace and celebration, if that ever happens for us. In the meantime, may the Lord keep us from wandering, and may we help each other. This is part of the community of faith. We help each other from wandering. One of the ways we do that, believe it or not, is we come to church. It's a novel idea. You mean if I want to be either helped or help another, I should be around them sometimes? Yeah. And I'll tell you this. To, to create a community of love and forgiveness and restoration, it takes nurturing. You get six days to nurture, you know, your husband, wife, kids, whatever, and then one with the saints. But when you have that kind of a nur- that nurture going on with brothers and sisters over a long period of time, it actually becomes somewhat attractive to other people when they find out about it. You guys have people in your church that did that? We got a member in our church that wrote a 12-page testimony. We only do one or two-page testimonies usually. And then we whittle it down to, I think, nine finally. It's bad stuff. So are all, all the other testimonies had the bad stuff in them as well. But when you have that kind of a spiritual community, it's a tasty to the soul of true believers. And it's warm and inviting to people who have messed their lives up to come into a forgiving community and enjoy the means of grace. I'm rambling. I'm going to land the plane by saying, let us pray. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to consider um, that church discipline, though it sounds bad and ugly and harsh and unloving, is actually a good thing. Preserving the purity of local churches, its testimony to other Christian churches and the world, and a means of restoring wayward members. We pray that you would keep all of us from this waywardness that goes outside the bounds sometimes. We pray as well that anybody who hasn't closed with Christ, has not been baptized, not joined and affixed their persons to other persons in church membership, that you would do this great work so that we could love them and and, uh, forgive them and they could love us and forgive us and nurture each other uh, in the bonds of Christ's grace and love. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.